0: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Politics on Draft, with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. And uh, and yeah, we've missed you a lot. Um, obviously, we didn't record last week's episode out of respect for the uh, Queen's passing. And um, yeah, we, we've put a lot of stuff out on Twitter just talking about uh, the Queen's death. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the stuff. But we are aware that it has literally been on the news like all the time now so i, comp- yep. I could i could i completely sympathize if people don't want to spend the next hour listening to queen 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 so we're going to get a Which good why message. we're not doing
1: it on queen 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 queen
0: yes you'll or see my title King, 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 King on the
1: matter.
0: yes and you'll see on the title we're doing it on something completely different but my m- 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 others might think it's equally as uh, laborious, but we can, <laughs> we, can yeah. we can get that there. So if, let's first start off with, uh, Kartik. what exactly are you drinking at the moment?
1: So I am drinking Peroni, which I'm drinking in a glass that was, I'm not going to say stolen, but it was given to me uh, by uh, a pub in central London who, I'm very, very good friends with the landlord, so he gave it to me for free because I really liked it. But yeah, I'm drinking Peroni.
0: That's very, very nice. And, what are you uh, drinking well, I was just going to say a quick fun fact. Peroni is actually owned by uh, Asahi. So uh, for any listeners who are beer drinkers, that's a little fun fact you can take away with you. Um, okay, that's
1: cool. Unfortunately,
0: right. I'm going to share a bit of poor form here. I'm actually not drinking. Um, it's It's been a beer fueled weekend and... Uh, But also because everything is shut today, we're we're currently recording on the bank holiday uh, Monday because everything's shut. I I legitimately can't even buy a beer. So uh,
1: we are recording at seven fifty one. So Daily Mail, please don't cancel us.
0: (laughs) So. uh, So, yeah. um, So unfortunately, I can't uh, drink. So it's just going to be some Robinson's orange squash for me. Um, But yeah, but we've got lots of grounds to cover. So Kartik, take it away.
1: So, I'm sure everyone's heard but if you haven't and you've been living in a cave uh, we have a new monarch and a new prime minister uh, King Charles III has risen to the throne mm. and uh, Liz Truss now lives in Downing Street um, so the king has completed a countrywide tour I believe Liz Truss went with him on the tour rather than actually doing her job as we know she just loves the monarchy a lot oh yeah uh, so she just had to be there with him. But she also loves the camera. Um, yeah. The queue to see the Queen laying in state was at maximum, I think, around 22 hours long. Some ridiculous. people
0: ridiculous.
1: Oh. Some people were giving some ridiculous figures like 40 hours long. It was never 40 hours long, but it was 22 hours long. Um, I went to see it the other day uh, with my friend uh, after we went out for dinner. And we saw people queuing sort of around Lambeth Bridge to Westminster Abbey all the way down to London Bridge. So it was pretty manic. There was a lot of police about. There was a a lot of army about as well. I think this was on the Thursday. Mm. So it wasn't quite the day to... But yeah, I mean, it was very, very long. Yeah. And I even saw people had... You know their suits for the next day of work slung over their back because they knew that they were going to be there overnight. Mm. So it was a crazy choice. I personally didn't make that choice, but if you did,
0: no, no I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it either. I was actually on the other end of the spectrum. I was, um, I was by Stansted Airport near where my family, uh, come from, and uh, all of the world leaders were coming in via Stansted. So I was on my way back home today, and I saw the uh, leader of South Korea take off, and there were lots of people. What what
1: was it like for them in the immigration queue? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: They they probably took the seven pounds fast track, (laughs) Uh, but there no there was the the big uh, you know big Boeing whatever uh, South Korean jet taking off, and it was it was quite a spectacle. um, That's fair enough. Did you see? Did you see Air Force One? Uh, no, I didn't because actually, and usually Air Force One does go through Stansted Airport. Uh, I think they actually went through Heathrow this time.
1: Um,
0: so yeah, quite, um, quite bizarre. Uh, Trump came into, uh, Stansted and, uh, as I lived there when Trump was there, we always heard him coming in and the you know, hundred other uh, attack helicopters follow him. Um, (laughs) but yeah, anyway. On a more
1: somber note, um. There were obviously, there were queues, there were sort of sort of pro-monarchy marches, if you like, um, but there were also protests, and people were arrested in some circumstances. So I'll give you a brief overview of what's happened. So people were arrested for citing Republican views, effectively. A man, possibly a teenager, he looked quite young, exclaimed that Prince Andrew was a sick old man as the Queen's coffin went past him. And he was subsequently arrested and charged. The two men who were not policemen, who dragged the teenager to the ground, were not charged whatsoever. A barrister, Paul and I'm sure you've heard of him if you've had your eyes glued to the TV, was questioned for holding a blank piece of paper as he told officers that he may write Not My King on it. Um, what does that say about freedom of speech, uh, in your opinion, James?
0: Yeah. So the, the, this is just the two things. Uh, the first one about the teenager explaining that Prince Andrew was a sick old man. I mean, I, it's a, it's a, that that one, I think they're two very different cases because I don't, the, the teenager, I don't think you can necessarily say that's a Republican view because I think I would shout out uh, that Andrew's a sick old man. But I... That's how
1: they've been classified.
0: Yeah, which I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know why they've classed it as a Republican view, because technically you can still like the monarchy, but you can still think, I don't know, that, that Prince Andrew is a sick old man. Um, mm, so okay.
1: that's I, a debatable point. <laughs> I mean, that's a,
0: that's a debate, because I, I, it depends whether you think that Prince Andrew's behaviour epitomises the rest of the monarchy. Um so i think that like that's 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 a debate to be had but i think the second one is a bit more kind of on the republican thing and it's such a it's such a difficult one because with other laws with other things if you were to say something like oh i'm going to i'm thinking of hurting someone for example you know you could arrest them on like conspiracy conspiracy to hurt but because because freedom of speech, like we said before, is such an ill-defined law, it's really hard. I personally, I don't think that he, he should have been uh, arrested because I think actually he was arrested for disturbing the peace and then de-arrested. No, Paul Powellson
1: that... wasn't arrested; he was just was sort he of pushed away uh... from the police. Um, no, he wasn't arrested. And multiple governments came out and said the rights protest and freedom of speech is a fundamental right, etc., etc., etc. But. Mm. It is a complicated right. It is a complicated discussion to have. We we covered it a couple of episodes ago, and we were discussing democracy and what it means and stuff like that. But it is worrying. It yeah. is worrying when when something like this happens. Um, I know that there were also discussions regarding the Commonwealth Empire. Now we've covered Empire in the previous episode in a previous episode, but I think it's important to discuss it briefly now. I strongly believe that the British Empire and the discussions of empire cannot just be prescribed to history. Effects of empire still play a strong role, not just in the globalised world, but also in British political society. So an imperial historian, also my dissertation supervisor for the next academic year, Kim Wagner, tweeted, Britain lost its empire long ago, but never underwent a process of decolonisation. People were su- su- People were simply left to nourish their imperial phantom pains. The, hysteri- the hysteric outburst of performative nostalgia in connection with the Queen's death is a direct symptom of this cultural aphasia. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, and I I think that what, what's, what I think probably will happen is that I think a lot of those conversations about the kind of the validity of Commonwealth and its links to empire will start to happen now that the queen, which, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about her as like the metaphorical glue um, to it all. And now that she's gone, you know, what sort of thing, what sort of a view will Charles have on the sort of role of Commonwealth and it's kind of nostalgia uh, for empire there's obviously a lot of talks recently about uh some of the 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 jewels on the queen's uh, uh mm-hmm. crown now more than ever being requested to be given back now that she's not not using it and i use using in uh in inverted commas uh there so yeah i think there's going to be some very interesting conversations uh that happen now and I don't I think... know
1: if the conversations will happen. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm not sure okay. if the conversation will happen or, or if they'll just be put down. Because a woman holding up a sign saying uh, something to do with imperialism and an expletive. By the way, we do swear. I don't know why I said expletive. That's, I'm, I'm not the BBC, <laughs> I swear. Uh, but... She was arrested for outlining that point. So I don't know to what extent those conversations will be had out in the open. I think we're having it on here, but we haven't got a massive platform. But yeah, yeah. I don't know to what extent they'll be carried out on a day-to-day basis or in universities widely, but we'll see. Yeah. I, what I want to highlight is the performative nostalgia point. There has been a lot of performative nostalgia from a lot of people in a lot of groups. Certain people are genuinely nostalgic and certain people are just sort of trying to play to the crowd a little bit. So people have exclaimed that the empire was magnificent and that the Commonwealth and the way it works is a testament to that. In my opinion, it's completely false. All empires were fundamentally violent. They did not leave a net gain to the countries that they colonised. In fact, with India alone, the British Empire extracted $45 trillion worth of wealth. Uh, but keeping this in mind, I want to cite some examples of this performative nostalgia and interrupt me if you want, James, because mm-hmm. I don't know if I've highlighted these you over the last two weeks. So a student led think tank called Turning Point UK recently tweeted, stating a few nations have attempted to capitalise off of the Queen's death by trying to steal artefacts off of us. Our advice remains the same. Get better at winning wars. <sighs> so that's a statement Ooh. with significant historical and moral deficits um but that's not all uh mm. the right-wing village idiots uh tucker carlson are for fox news by the way this is fox news and tucker carlson are us-based but it's it tells you a little bit about the discussions people are having uh he claimed that the british empire was benign and his six-minute rant which is on youtube is just a mere vision of british ex- British exceptionalism that is cited by many in the UK and now apparently in the US, um, which is also an ex British colony. Um, and the sort of lack of self-awareness from Tucker Carlson makes me want to put a gun in my mouth sometimes. But, um, yeah. What do you think about everything I just told you?
0: Uh, Yeah. I, so I knew about the Tucker Carlson situation. I know he also said that uh, something along the lines of that, The the last beautiful building that was made in India was the uh, the Bombay train station or something like that. Um, Yeah, that's not true. um, That's not true. And I I don't know anything about Indian architecture, but uh, I mean that was built a very long time ago. So I'd be very surprised if that was the last beautiful building of India. Uh, Also, (laughs) the point is completely wrong. I
1: know this is a slightly nerdy point, but to insinuate that the British are the only ones that This idea of British exceptionalism That they went to a third world country And made it into something amazing They gave them a judicial system, a train system Is completely false You need to remember that if we we want to go off architecture India is the country of the Taj Mahal Hmm. And India is a country of maths Of really, really complicated economics That was there before the British Empire ever was Now obviously there are massive moral deficits That were in India at the time as well I.e. the caste system but the British were not exclusive in getting rid of that. There were many, many leading Indians that got rid of
0: that. And hey, we anyway. have a train. We have a train system, and it's shit. So you know, okay, not you and district line, <laughs> but um, but yeah. And then the the turning point UK uh, tweet. Um, I mean, one. I think the timing of it, timing of that tweet was was so ill, like badly timed i mean this is supposed to be a, a time where we're all uh, kind of trying to you know bind together in uh, in and come together in kind of in remembrance of the queen whatever whatever your view is um on that but th- but then the actual tweet itself is uh is just i mean it's it's wrong but also it can be disputed on the fact that you know uh, there have been recollections on the queen on, on the ob- obtaining of the queen's uh artifacts uh of being a uh, coercive and uh kleptic manner so you know yeah. um so some might argue that that point's actually just factually inaccurate anyway um Based on the fact that you can't steal something off of someone if they've still stolen it off of you, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a bizarre one. But um, but anyway, yeah.
1: that's very philosophical. Let's move on to mm. the next story.
0: Yes, and this comes from come from me, and it's going kind of back into the realms of normal news um, because I feel like we've gone just on the abnormality of the last uh, uh, week or so, and and that's uh, so the charts of the exchequer is this Friday is uh, making a fiscal statement. Now, it's not a budget. Remind us, remind us who
1: the new Chancellor is as well,
0: please. Kwesi um a uh, good friend of uh, of Liz Truss. Now, uh, he <laughs> is expected to make a... <laughs> and, and, and Amber Rudd as well. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, he is expected to make a fiscal statement. Um, not a budget, a fiscal statement, because a budget is something that's audited. Um, a fiscal statement is effectively a kind of like a policy outline, if you will, but with less of the kind of I guess regulation to it which pretty much characterizes uh what's going to be included in that statement as well and uh as part of the government's sort of pro-growth agenda they are planning to scrap the bankers bonuses cap now if you don't know what this is in 2009 after the financial crash uh, lord turner did a review as to why the banks failed as they did and it was believed that the bankers bonuses scheme meant where executives could, you know, get bonuses at the end of the year, which was, you know, in excess of tens of millions of pounds, uh, were more likely to take excessive risk due to the fact that they were still going to get that bonus at the end of the year, uh, which ultimately could result in the collapsing of a bank and the sort of crisis that we saw in 2008 with uh, banks having to get bailed out. Um, Now, the bonuses were capped as part of an EU directive uh, to two times annual salary. Uh, which, in all fairness, I don't know about you, Kartik. That's still a bloody lot because if yeah,
1: consider yeah. If yeah, the average well, salary is good, about
0: yeah. two, if the average salary is about two point three million, and you know people could be, uh, executives could be earning an excess of you know four point three million bonus on top of that. that's still a bloody lot, isn't it?
1: I mean, that's on the high scale. I know the right is going to well. I, I say the right. I know the Conservative Party is going to make the argument that you know. Juniors make a lot less than that. It's true, they make a lot less than that because Mm. they make about 120 grand, uh, (laughs) which is still a lot considering we're living through a cost of living crisis. So the idea that they could earn about £240,000 as a bonus is ridiculous.
0: And the reason for doing this, uh, Crazy Coursing has outlined two reasons for this. One is that it's, it's a legacy of our EU membership being that it's an EU financial directive, uh, which we should supposedly rid ourselves of. And the second is that, in line with the other uh, policy, the low taxation, the not windfall taxing uh, the energy uh, firms, is that scrapping the, the, the banker's bonus cap should increase competitiveness... Within the financial sector, making the UK an attractive place to invest and potentially encourage challenger banks to enter the playing fields. These are the banks like your Monzos, your Starlings, etc., which should incentivize uh, you know, better products uh, for consumers with an underlying sense of competitiveness to this. Okay. Now, I'm going to
1: challenge these two points really quickly because I, yeah. I saw this on the briefing and I thought I have to challenge. So the first point, i.e., the legacy of the EU membership, hmm. that is just another example of. Phrasing, the mm. policy that he's come out with. Clearly, this policy is going to help a lot of his friends in the city. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. So that's how he's phrasing it, as a part of the rhetoric to the public. And the second point of increasing competitiveness, therefore, better for the consumer and likely to lead to more investment, is why would banks want to invest more if they are spending more on bonuses? i.e. if well yes arguably they're pocketing more money for themselves but the risk taking point as well is hasn't changed it's still there the idea that bankers will take more risks if if their personal bonuses are increased also it doesn't necessarily lead to offering more incentivized products for consumers because we need to allow those smaller banks to come in and we need to allow those smaller banks to have the talent in order to carry out their plans now if all of the graduates are just going into big banks for the massive bonus that you're going to get at the end of the year what do these smaller banks gain from that that's what i'm trying to understand isn't it just creating a bigger monopoly obviously you work a lot more in the finance sector so you have a better understanding but please go ahead
0: yeah i mean uh, so the bankers the bankers bonus is somewhat um you know is it's discretionary one who gets it as well so you know it could be that uh it got, kind of goes to the the owners and shareholders etc um but from my perspective I, I don't think it's a good idea um for, for two reasons as a socio-economic and a purely economic reasons the first thing is that we're living in a cost of living crisis now i know that the uk doesn't have a magic money tree as has has been said and i know that you know there does need to be measures in order to you know make sure that we don't completely render our future you know worse off um which is you know i i understand that however gambling on the economy which is effectively what crazy courting is doing won't work and it certainly won't assure a better future because you know it, it, what this is is a gamble we're gambling that if we scrap the cap like we lo- like it's being planned for lowering taxes that will increase investment mm-hmm. he's gambling on the banks then becoming more competitive and offering better products to its consumers which that's in my opinion, which in my opinion doesn't make sense because it's so multifaceted you know you just said about um you know the actual kind of internal economies of a bank and that's so true you know that there's no data to suggest that if it's more com- if they're not being taxed if they're not being uh capped on their bonuses that that's going to somehow affect the better rates and premiums which uh, consumers will be able to benefit from because actually Mm. financial services usually are dependent on the overall state of the macro economy so you know that it's it's a very long-term thing that for some reason crazy courting in the current government is trying to think suggest to people that it can happen fairly instantly and like you said it probably is because they're saying oh this will happen but in the meantime we're just going to benefit very few you know percentage of people um mm-hmm. so and, and i've said here you, you know it's 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 a cyclical trend it's you know deregulation that should spur on growth which should spur on more growth but the the issue is is that first little sort of uh that first little knock-on, which is deregulation causing growth, it could cause growth, but equally, if it doesn't cause growth, it could just completely backfire and not cause anything, which would just render the whole thing pointless. And then to go on to the socioeconomic point, which kind of is also to do the economic point, you know, because socioeconomically, it's a real kick in the teeth for people who may struggle to heat their homes, and feed their families this spring, when in March bankers may be receiving tens of million pounds in bonuses uh, company-wide, but also just for individuals, because they're people that make a lot of money. So Mm. what would would happen if we have lots of deregulation, no growth, but then there are certain individuals that are receiving millions of pounds worth of bonuses? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's going to widen the gap.
1: And it's just going to create a
0: transparency nightmare and it's going to mm-hmm. grab people away from politics because I think all, all politics is benefiting friends and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it could cause some really bad impacts. But it's, um, it's this idea that
1: post 2008 that, oh, we don't need regulations, you know, we don't need regulations on how to carry a coffee cup and we don't need to have a sign saying a coffee cup is too hot, etc. And that we've learned the lessons from 2008. But the fact of the matter is that if there's money involved. No one's learning any lessons. People are just going to continue with that same risk level for themselves, not not for their investors, for themselves because they know that they're going to get a bigger bonus if if it hits, if 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 it does what it's intended to do. And
0: what sorry, go on. And you know, I think that if if the economy was in a better time and in a better place, we might be in a bit more of an open conversation where we could say, yeah, you know what. We're in a good place, you know. People are, are. If you have had a good winter, you know, maybe let's maybe let's consider this because it could be a potential revenue stream that we're not we're not currently aware of, and that could just add to the growth that we would hypothetically already be experiencing. However, now certainly more than ever is just not the time for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, another argument that I know QuasiQuoting is going to make. Uh, next week is oh you know Labour is a party that always wants to increase taxes etc where do you find this link between taxes and bonuses I don't get it because suddenly giving rich people more money is not going to in- create growth for the economy
0: no, it's, it's, going, it's just going not
1: to- it's, 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 it's not that same link of we leave more money in the pockets of public services so they have more to spend but these aren't public services these are bankers um and i'm not going to go into a rant about how much i dislike bankers uh because some of my very very indian and very very uh money driven family friends are going to be a bit upset when they hear this but that's that's my uh, that's my opinion
0: yeah and you know ultimately uh the, the people that are really going to benefit from this are you know the ceos and the people who Make the big executive decisions on these banks, and a lot, quite a lot of them, the same people who caused the 2008 financial crash. Now, I know this is not a bank driven uh, crash that we're currently seeing, and you know, some might argue, well, why should the banks, um, you know, be put to this level of scrutiny when it wasn't them that, like, had it wasn't their fault they had to completely render their uh, products? effectively useless and no different from just hoarding cash underneath your uh underneath your bed but um but yeah but it's it's a real it's a real interesting we'll have we'll have a look and see what happens on friday and uh we'll come back next week and evaluate what the entirety of the fiscal statement uh says and we can uh see what it means for people going into the winter uh, but we're gonna have a little uh, quick break now and we'll come back with with our main topic which is brexit where are we now So, today we wanted to cover
1: Brexit. We know it doesn't necessarily link in with any topics in current affairs this week, but I think it's important that everyone understands it. Mm. Now, the last 10 years in British politics has been, you can argue, the worst 10 years in British politics in recent history, but Brexit has been the most significant event out of all of that. Not, I wouldn't say the worst or the best, but the most significant. Mm. Uh, and everything else that we see going on in our politics right now is a aftershock of that. The election of Boris Johnson, the election of Liz, well, the, you can call it the election, but I'm going to call it an appointment of Liz Truss by Conservative Party members is a catalyst of that. And if you just see this current state of the cabinet that has been announced, uh, then you can see that these are largely pro-Brexit Conservative members and the way that even the Labour Party puts out certain policies has changed as a result of Brexit mm. you have to be very careful so I want to sort of define what is Brexit, do a little bit of jargon busting about the Northern Ireland backstop, give a little bit of a history lesson and then we can have a discussion on certain topics about how it affects us, i.e. the youth, uh, if, the European, if the European Union is in decline of should we have had a second referendum Etc. Etc. So, James, what are your memories of Brexit? How would you define Brexit? Go on.
0: Well, Brexit was a time which kind of made me want to claw open my, you know, head and just oh, I, you know, I. There was a time where I genuinely, if I if I saw Brexit on the big the breaking news in the morning at you know eight o'clock every morning before I went to school, I'd just be like, oh, you know, I was so like angry i just wanted to hear something else ironically mm-hmm. after after covid after boris after ukraine after even now the queen i'm kind of thinking yeah you know we, we can what slide is, in so we bad. can we can slide in a bit of brexit if you want to i don't mind um yeah so my my memory of it is a very a difficult one because obviously i wasn't able to vote at the time so i mm-hmm and 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 neither was yourself and a lot of uh, a lot of people our age and we weren't able to vote and so but we were so polarized by it because ultimately it was something that was going to affect us and is affecting us now um and I'm not going to go down the whole road of votes for 16 and any of that because I th- think that's that's a slippery road and we'd completely get off topic but um no my memories are <laughs> not particularly fond I also do want to outline and just for this is for transparency because i'm sure if people were able to do some deep diving i used to be v- quite pro brexit um i used to be pro brexit on the basis of um the actual organisation of the european union and some of the kind of key figures within uh that kind of uh uh like sort of bureaucratic organisation and i still have some of those thoughts but on a more kind of holistic level, I definitely don't believe that Brexit is potentially gaining something. So that's, that's something we can kind I of think explore. it's,
1: I think it's easier to have discussions about the European union and the state of the European union now that we're out of it. Mm. Um, but I, I have always been a pro remainer. Um, I'm not suddenly changing my stance like Liz Truss. Um, I always believe that we are better off in European, in the European union, even at the age of 16, uh, even though I wasn't that politically engaged at the time, but that was my opinion. But I'll, 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 I'll do a bit of a monologue on what Brexit was and how it started. Yes. So Brexit was the withdrawal of the UK from the European Union as a result of the 2016 referendum, which was a very, very contentious time in British politics. Brexit effect- effectively means that we are no longer a part of the customs union, There is no longer free movement of people and we do not get to vote on EU law. Now, this could, of course, expand uh, as the UK government proposes to leave the European Convention on Human Rights and hopefully and possibly have its own human rights bill. Uh, Although I would prefer to stay in the European Convention on Human Rights, because that just means at least our human rights aren't being threatened. But it's hard to explain when Brexit started. Some people attribute it to the 2015 general election, when David Cameron put it in the uh, put put the Brexit referendum in the Conservative Party manifesto, as did other parties, which people forget to mention. People also attribute it to the Maastricht Treaty, treaty times, which was effectively establishing the European Union out from the European Community and giving it much more of a legal status, um, which eventually also led to the establishment of the Euro. Uh, which we opted out of. Um, some people attribute the rise of Euroscepticism, Euroscepticism, for when we joined in 1973, and some even attribute it to the end of the Second World War. James, what
0: do you attribute it to? Um, yeah, I mean, I, f- for yeah, I, I definitely attribute it to the kind of Euroscepticism born out of, um, born out of our our joining of it and. Um, definitely, you know, the the recession in the nineties, uh certainly Black War Wednesday or whatever they kind of uh, uh laboured it as uh def- definitely didn't help uh with that at all. And also I actually attribute a lot of it to the financial crash, obviously what we we're talking about earlier, um mm-hmm. because of that kind of disparity and uh, it, it's quite similar to the kind of Republicanism, or well, Republic views. Should I say Republicanism? Is a little bit different. Republic, Republic views that we saw in uh, America. Republican views, and um, we saw, and the kind of Trumpism that we attributed. You know, things like, uh, you know, tr- p- big liberal uh, key it's figures making making a lot of money from, uh, and the the kind of Those at the bottom not benefiting from the economy and benefiting from uh, what the state or what the state, not necessarily the state, but what the kind of private sector and all that uh, has to offer. And that kind of gave way to the populism rhetoric, which I hope we can kind of talk about um, a little bit. But understand that's kind of a topic in its own uh, making. I just want to kind of bring up also what you said about the the, the voting on EU law and you, you know you you spoke about the European Convention of, of human rights leaving that and possibly having our own uh, human rights uh, hopefully bill. having
1: your own human rights bill
0: yes and I think it's it's a case of if we do have a human human rights bill it's just about how how it's made and because a lot of people say that the european convention of human rights kind of gave that uh extra level of accountability and uh transparency it didn't place power in like in the hands of of, of just like two sort of two individuals and one executive and i completely get that sentiment we've chose to oh, that's an argument itself uh uh we we have left the european union and some might argue that it's better to have a human rights bill because effectively we're not voting on eu law so why should it apply to us and i completely I, get
1: that. I, I want to do some jargon busting here quickly mm. um the re- we do have a human rights bill but what the, hu- the human rights bill itself we have at the moment is very thin because all it says is we completely listen to the european convention on human rights
0: yes yes yes
1: um so we do completely refer to the human uh, we defer to the human Euro- european the human. convention on human rights um So that's what it does. And you can go and have a look at the European Convention on Human Rights. It's not a difficult read. Um, So or you can do some reading on it, but I encourage everyone to do so to realise what we might potentially be losing. I also think if we end up having our own human rights bill, it would require a lot of cross-party work. So it would
0: be
1: a pretty landmark Uh, Moment in parliamentary history if we have that. I don't know whether it'll be good or bad, if it will encompass everything. I know that there will be some voices.
0: If I can can interject, I actually think it's a case of if it will happen. And I think that the Human Rights Bill in essence is obviously, well, in my opinion, is a good idea, but it's actually whether... It's how it's con- constructed because if you've got, the, say, the Conservative Party at the moment who are talking about, you know, threatening the rights of protest, the rights of uh, freedom of speech, etc., then this potential human rights bill could be quite dangerous. Um, so you just have to be very mm-hmm. careful when constructing that bill, which is what I agree with you could, you know, potentially be done in a more cross-party. Uh, effort, but we'll have to see on
1: that. I think one would hope it would be a cross-party effort because, realistically, it would fall under the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary to come up with a human rights bill. And having Liz Truss and Suella Braverman coming up with a <laughs> human rights bill oh. is a really, really, really scary thought. Mm. But what I was, what you said, is exactly what I was going to come on to. Of there will be some voices in the Conservative Party, possibly on. In the Labour Party, um, you know, some people in the Labour Party surprised us by by going for leave in the in the um, Brexit referendum that, that, that will be saying, we don't need a human rights bill. Why do we need a human rights bill? Um, that's why I'm encouraging everyone to go and have a read of the European Convention on Human Rights, because a lot of the rights that are there that we take for granted could very well be at risk, i.e. the right to protest or the right to asylum. Mm. Uh, Which is the whole Rwanda policy situation uh, where the UK government is planning to ship off uh, asylum seekers and uh, people who land on our shores to Rwanda um, and the European uh, Court of Justice opposing that is one of the reasons why we want to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. When I say we, I mean the Conservative Party and the government of our day. So that's why I encourage everyone to go do their reading on the European Convention on Human Rights. It's a topic in itself if we try to do it on the podcast and we have a lot more to get through. But what I wanted to cover is sort of the
0: timeline of everything that happens. Yes, carry on with our journey through time. (laughs)
1: You're not even drinking. I don't know why you came up with such... (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So on June 23rd, uh, 23rd, 2016... I was in Thorpe Park. Also, on a less important point, uh, the UK voted to leave the EU on a very narrow margin of 519 to 48.1%. It well, was at, an least unexpected... to at least you got to go on At least you
0: got to go on I did.
1: I did. I was very, very scared of the rides that go upside down. But I, I got over that fear <laughs> on that day. But anyway, it was an unexpected result. Many expected to remain... Uh, but in my view, the Remain campaign had a very poor campaign, focusing largely on the economy. And uh, the Leave campaign had an effective, but in my opinion, amoral campaign that largely misled a number of voters. Now, mm. you wanted to discuss populism. I'm more than happy to discuss populism uh, briefly, because that's a topic that I can go on about, similar to Empire. I can go on about for a whole episode. Um, but there was there was a lot of populist rhetoric involved. Um you know the sort of breaking point, uh, the breaking point poster that Nigel Farage loved to post in front of. Um, mm-hmm. That was an element of the sort of anti-immigration uh, stance that was mirrored throughout the Brexit campaign. And there was a lot of anti-establishment, which you picked out uh, very well, which was similar to uh, the Trump campaign in 2016. Yes the idea that the establishment is screwing us over that we need yeah. to send them a message and this was their this was the voters way of sending a message as a result of 2008 that, that- uh, which is, was, a, is the main reason in America but there, there was a lot on.
0: of there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of anti-establishment rhetoric uh, and there was a lot of sloganism as well mm. there was a lot of these big statements you know uh, three hundred and fifty million pounds taken from us, which obviously as we all know is like a complete botch you've, yeah. <laughs> you've,
1: you've, you've read my paper
0: you've read my paper I haven't but uh, m- maybe oh. maybe I just knew because I was uh, I was kind of secretly indoctrinating you into writing that <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of that sloganism. Uh, let's not forget Brexit itself was a slogan of the sun, I believe, which was a primarily pro brexit uh, uh, uh newspaper. So uh, there's, you know, there, there is, it was completely slogan-based and it was supposed to hit a level of sort of, engagement from people who might not be so interested in in politics. And it was those mm-hmm. voices of, like, David Cameron doesn't care, you know, if if you don't get that 350 million pounds in the NHS every day because he goes private. Uh, you know, all those other kind of big Remain mm-hmm. voices, uh, you know, don't care because they benefit from the EU. They benefit from the fancy dinners going to uh, Strasbourg and going to um, Brussels every other weekend and stuff like that. And... Uh, quite ironic, because uh, th- that actually is uh, what Nigel Farage was doing anyway. Um, but, yeah, so populism was I'm obviously... also going
1: to call you out here. Brexit was not birthed by the sun. It Was, was birthed it not? By... No. Um, so in 2012, uh, wh- when Greece was going through some economic troubles, which it still is, um, yeah. the term Grexit was coined for Greece possibly leaving oh, the euro. Was it? Oh. And then yeah uh, and then Brexit was born out of that uh, in 2012 itself. But did, did you know who um,
0: the first the first kind of paper to to kind of put it because I I do remember this big thing that like It was the sun. Thing. It was, was the it? sun but it was yeah.
1: it was coined as a joke.
0: Yes. Well before yeah, yeah, the sun yeah.
1: brought it out. Um but yeah a, a lot we were discussing when Brexit was Birthed. I think it was birthed around 2001 or at least the way the campaign for leave was structured was birthed around 2001 because that's when there's a very, very interesting website and a think tank called UK Only Changing Europe that covers interviews of prominent people in the Brexit campaign and the yeah. Remain campaign. Uh, there's there's an interview from a, from a chap called Douglas Carswell. And Douglas Carswell, he was in the Conservative Party, then in, then in UKIP, and he talks about how this move to make Brexit a grassroots movement was birthed around two thousand and one. So the vision of Brexit that you see today, in my opinion, was birthed in two thousand and one. Euroscepticism has been around since you know well before we even joined in January first, nineteen seventy three. But the trend of euroscepticism is birthed also out of Margaret Thatcher. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, back onto the timeline. Yes. When uh, we found out that we were going to leave in June twenty in, on June twenty third, uh, David Cameron resigned because he was uh, a pro. He ran a pro Remain campaign, and it was the first time in British political history that a campaign uh, lost. The campaign from the government lost, uh, and the result was against the government. So David Cameron resigned. And Theresa May became Prime Minister in July of the same year, unopposed. She was appointed by the Conservative Party. What followed was three failed votes of the withdrawal agreement in Parliament uh, and a general election in which Theresa May lost her majority but remained Prime Minister. She remained Prime Minister till 2019 when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and successfully got a very similar withdrawal agreement through Parliament. But it wasn't easy. He had to prorogue Parliament, which was arguably the catalyst for a general election in late 2019. And after getting a si- significant majority, the deal was then passed. Now, this idea of withdrawal agreements. Now, we're going to get a bit nerdy here as well, as we're about to go into the Northern Ooh. Ireland backstop as well. This idea of withdrawal agreements that Boris Johnson somehow produced a significant agreement, a significantly different agreement with the European Union is completely false. The withdrawal agreement was the same. It was just internal parliamentary politics that meant Theresa May, for some for some reason, could not get the deal through Parliament,
0: True. where
1: even, even the DUP was voting against it. Mm. And uh, they believed that a more unifying figure in the Conservative Party could. And Boris Johnson tried on that first vote. He failed. Even try on the first way, actually. I'm, I'm, I need to correct myself. Uh, he knew that he was going to fail. Therefore, he prorogued parlo- Parliament, which was ruled unlawful by the Supreme Court. And then, after get, getting a significant majority in the general election of twenty nineteen, the deal was then passed. So, the deal was the withdrawal agreement deal isn't wasn't different throughout those four years. It's just internal domestic politics for anyone. For anyone that says domestic politics is a bit boring, and it doesn't really matter, it really does because it influences mm-hmm. um, what deals we have. So, but we have now left. We left on a deal. We didn't leave on a no deal. That was also a prospect. Um, but what what's your memory of that time?
0: Oh, I remember it being uh, just ridiculous, and I actually remember. Um, I remember I went on to question time when I was 16 years old and I was was around the time when I think it might have been, they're about to do the first vote for Theresa May or maybe the second or third vote or something like that. And, uh, funny enough, I, I actually remember it was people on there was, uh, in Blackford, um, uh, Shami Chakrabarti, uh, Jane, the late James Brokenshire, uh, when he was the housing secretary, um, Mm. And a couple of other characters I can't quite, uh, quite, quite remember. And uh, I publicly stood up and uh, said that I, I wish that the, the vote was, was passed through. And I remember sort of receiving a bit of opposition from some of my, uh, some of my counterparts and, uh, uh, James Brokenshire actually agreed with my and pointed my point out, so that's my kind of little claim to fame, whether or not I kind of am proud of that claim to fame or not, I'm not particularly sure. Um, but the the quite interesting thing is, is kind of as you said, that there was kind of the main differences to the Brexit we got and the Brexit that uh, that Theresa May was actually trying to pass is, uh, is, is more kind of, the differences are more kind of like jargon and kind of very little caveats uh within those different deals so uh hey maybe my suggestion wasn't too far off but hey i don't hold ai am
1: gonna i'm gonna go try and find out on youtube yeah. actually, <laughs> you, know,
0: <laughs> you I, just I, have I, to tell
1: I, me what town it was in yeah. and in fact tell our listeners what town it was in so that we can all go and have a
0: if i i don't actually know if it is that if it is on um if it's on Thing, but I do have a recording somewhere um, it was at Bishop Stortford in uh, later uh, 2018 I don't I don't actually know if it's out, out there but if it is I I promise I will put it onto the uh, Twitter handle and I'll completely uh, uh, humiliate myself as my 16 year old self tries to prescribe uh, the solution to all of the UK's problems um, but yeah So so that was my well, my my understanding of it all at that time
1: <laughs> fair enough i'm gonna do some more jargon busting here so if anyone decides to go and research brexit after this you're gonna see a term that pops up quite frequently but you don't quite understand because it's never properly explained it's a very jargony term it's called the northern ireland backstop so mm. the irish backstop formerly known as the northern ireland protocol was a proposed protocol to a draft Brexit withdrawal agreement that never came into force. It was developed by Theresa May's government and the European Commission in December 2017, and it was finalised in November 2018. It aimed to prevent an evident border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland after Brexit. Now, if anyone wants to go and research Ireland after this, feel free to, um, they've had a very, very contentious history, a very sad history Mm. uh, with the troubles. But again, we will not go into that here because we could do a whole podcast on that. But the backstop would have required keeping Northern Ireland in some aspects of the European single market until an alternative arrangement was agreed between the EU and the UK. The proposal also provided for the UK as a whole to have a common customs territory with the EU until a solution was delivered to avoid the need for customs controls within the UK. The backstop element was that the arrangement would have continued to apply potentially indefinitely unless the UK and the EU both agreed on a different arrangement, Um, just like we did at the end of the transition period. In October 2019, the new Boris Johnson government, renegotiated the draft, replacing the backstop. In the new protocol, the whole of the UK comes out of the EU Customs Union. That's Scotland, Northern Ireland, England and Wales. As I said, the whole of the UK comes out of the EU Customs Union as a single customs territory. Northern Ireland will now be included in any future UK trade deals, but will have no tariffs or restrictions on goods crossing the Irish border, border in either direction. Thereby... There's a de facto customs border between the Irish Sea with Great Britain. What's your understanding of the Northern Ir- Irish backstop? I know it's very convoluted. We don't have to discuss yeah. it. Live, but do it's, you have difficult.
0: Any views? it's difficult. And I know that, um, you know, we've got some good questions to kind of like holistically kind of sum all this up and kind of talk about the now that I'd, I'd quite like to get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, my kind of understanding of it is, I, I you know, I, I do admit I do need to take a lot more like closer look at this at the time. It, as you said, it was so convoluted and so drawn out. Um, obviously, something that you slightly touched on, but rightly said, we can talk about is is the kind of is the piece with regards to this. You know the the, the benefit of that sort of border between northern ireland and the republic of ireland was that you know a lot of troubles had happened i'd say troubles uh, not necessarily literally troubles that happened Uh, hence it got branded as that um Mm -hmm. and one way to sort that out was the good friday agreement and the north northern ireland protocol or the backstop uh potentially threatens this this peace. Mm -hmm. by um, by the uh, attention of a, a potential customs uh, uh, or a potential, yeah, customs-based uh, uh, border control uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and uh, and that was the thing that kind of worried me, um, especially. And um, it's something that needed to have have been done with that in mind. I either the the the, ha- the agreement had to have included that, and hence why the DEP didn't vote for any of Theresa May's deals was because they were so worried about how about potentially returning to the sort of scenes that we saw in the 1980s which was obviously horrific and uh, a big bit of turmoil at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, that was kind of my main takeaway uh, from that. We can kind of do a whole thing on the Northern I- the, kind of the issue with Northern Ireland and yeah. also talk about Stormont and stuff like that. because uh, I
1: think a- we'll cover it when we cover the State of the Union mm. um, at some point uh, because it is a very, very interesting topic, a very sad topic yeah. uh, that we need to have a proper look at before we come to you with it. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the point of there were multiple points throughout the brexit referendum and the brexit debate of introducing a second referendum now james and i both have our opinions on this we recently found out that they're not opposing opinions <laughs> but james what's your opinion
0: so my opinion is that we shouldn't have one and mm-hmm. uh, our reasonings might be different but uh, ultimately we agree the same thing we shouldn't have one one because i think we need to kind of, we need to move on. Now, there will be those, uh, you know, voices that say, but hold on a second, we were lied to in the Leave uh, campaign. Now, obviously, the issue is, is that there's no accountability within a referendum because, um, because it's not like, for example, a manifesto pledge, where if it goes against that manifesto pledge, it can't be voted in by the... House of Lords on a kind of, they can't oppose it because it's the will of the people sort of thing. Uh, There isn't, that doesn't exist within referendums, and it's because Mm -hmm. referendums are usually legally not binding. And that, in my opinion, was the big issue that surrounded all of this, was that Mm -hmm. they said that the referendum would be legally binding and had we have had that non-legally binding then we can kind of we were able to we in theory would have been able to kind of talk about this with a lot more transparency and a lot more kind of debate and discussion and you know the 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 sort of audits and reviews could have happened on the leave campaign and maybe a sort of different approach could have then happened afterwards and the 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 push for a second random might have been uh, more accepted and more uh, prominent. The second thing, just want to add, just before you come onto your pit a bit, mm-hmm. is with that whole the Leave campaign lied to the people and the uh, manipulated the people, and hence decide that got them more votes. It's really, really hard because there would have to be data there. This is from an objective standpoint. There would have to be data there that actually mm-hmm. correlates people's decision based on what they saw from leave.eu. And that's what needs to be found out because actually i me personally i didn't educate my view on leave.eu i educated it based on you know what i'd seen of uh of eu looking at the way that the parliament works the way that the treaties work and stuff like that that ed- that <laughs> educated in my view it wasn't actually the buses the slogans the ghosts the 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 johnsons the whoever so that's my opinion what's yours Coffee?
1: I also believe that we shouldn't have had a second referendum. Uh, I remember being in a politics A-level classroom uh, and being one of very, very few people saying we shouldn't have had a second referendum. I was the only Labour person in my classroom saying we shouldn't have a second referendum. Me and my girlfriend had extensive debates about why we shouldn't have a second referendum. And my point is a lot more geopolitical and possibly more practical from a geopolitical standpoint, it's if we decide to have a second referendum and somehow we it goes on to the other side, we remain mm. and we rejoin the European Union, our position in the European Union is completely changed. We've yeah. lost all that soft power that we used to have. It's like almost getting divorced with someone and then, you know, rubbishing your partner for the for the next couple of years and then saying, do you know what? You know, our relationship wasn't all that bad and it was quite expensive trying to get rid of you. So can I, you know, can I move back in the house and, you know, can we have the bed together and stuff like that? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a problem because the next day you're going to wake up and say, I have very, very strong views about what we should do about the positioning of the telly or, you know, we, I have very, very strong views on what we should have for dinner tonight. We will no longer have that soft power in the European Union if we rejoin. Also, the moment we have a second referendum and the moment it's a remain vote, or even if it's a leave vote, the campaign for a third referendum starts yeah, instantaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we will just be in a constant cycle of referendum, referendum, referendum. So... Do I think at some point we will rejoin? I'm hopeful that yes, we will, um, if the European Union is still there. But do I think that we should have had a second referendum? No, because our position in the European Union would have been terrible.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally totally agree with that. Um, And if anyone
1: disagrees uh, and has opposing views, please tell us on Twitter, uh, because... We'll discuss it at length and we'll possibly address it on the podcast.
0: At p slash on slash draft.
1: <laughs> okay. It's underscore actually, but okay. Uh, <laughs> what The question I want to ask you is, is, do you think the European Union itself is on decline, is in decline? Because you've, you've cited that the state of the European Union is one of the reasons why you decided that you wanted to leave and then you changed your mind. Uh, but do you think the European Union itself is in decline?
0: I, so it's really hard to. So my reasoning at the time was that I thought that there were some uh, particularly big voices within the European Union that were effectively making very big decisions, and it became it became ultimately a power. It became a big power thing. You know, you had countries that led the uh, the European, uh, not the Parliament, but the the other one um, where effectively all the leaders uh, came together. I know that we were in that position of power for a long time and effectively led to the entire uh it's going to really annoy me um the name of that particular structure but anyway um you know you had it was a lot of it was a lot of bureaucracy i actually i didn't actually think that the the the, the elections of the european parliament were particularly great because it what happened is, is you end up having like having uh, independence based or or should i say withdrawal based voices within the parliament which just meant nothing got done because it was like you just had to reform uk or whatever it was Bre or the the what was it called the brexit party or ukip people within uh the eu which just completely makes no sense from a logical um Perspective, and it was a lot of, and I guess this kind of sounds a little bit populist of me, but it it is a matter of a fact that it did seem like a very big kind of let's go to dinner and talk about European affairs kind of ordeal Mm -hmm. instead of some actual, you know, good campaigns, some actual, you know, sort of good figures. And there were some, there were some good figures, but I actually felt a lot of the good figures were in the respective domestic parliaments, who obviously didn't have as much of a kind of voice within the european um parliament but but on your question if uh, has the european union in itself declined i think it's really hard because of covid Mm-hmm. and COVID posed a lot of questions as to the Brexit because there was, of course, the, the vaccine rollout, there was the issuing of PPE, the issuing of ventilators, and there was a lot of people saying, oh, if we were in the EU, X, Y, and Z, and a lot of people saying, oh, thankfully we're not in the EU, so we can do this, this, and that without giving all of our other stock to whoever and whoever. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's really hard, and also with Russia, obviously there are a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the... European countries, a member of the EU, rely a lot on uh, Russia. And obviously there's also the fact that the European Union is the contentious part of uh, Russia with some of those ex-Soviet um, countries joining uh, joining Europe and joining NATO. I know mean, we're not talking about NATO, but uh, just for, for argument's sake. And so um, it, I think it's hard to say if the European Union is in decline because actually I don't think that... that both us as a us as Britain and the European Union have really sort of experienced a fully fledged Brexit environment because of these different emergency events and sort of loud, sort of monumentous events that have happened.
1: I think it's actually quite easy, and I think the answer is yes. Um, and that's not to sort of question the remaining no, 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 voices, no. but I think. You know, losing its second-largest contributor, i.e., the UK, to its overall European budget, is a sign that the European Union is in decline. And I think the European Union itself is very rigid, and I think it needs some flexibility uh, put into it. And I think we offered that flexibility when we were using our voice in the European Parliament. And we, the European Union itself, the European Union itself has lost that. Um, and also, when you look at certain member states that are beginning to question their european union membership i'm not saying emmanuel macron is questioning european union membership i think he's very dedicated to european union membership but i think it's also very very likely that at some point in france's future marine le pen will be the president
0: Mm, and at
1: that point you have to question european union membership for france victor orban uh hungary's premier is certainly questioning european union membership italy is certainly questioning european union membership and i think the european union the european union needs to take a look at its not not at its member states but at its member citizens and what the policies that they come out with what they are thinking because at the at the moment the european union is very jargony as you've witnessed by uh, this most recent episode. So as I said, um, the European Union needs to look at its member citizens, not member states, because at the moment, the European Union is very jargony, it doesn't address and doesn't communicate how certain policies are shown to its uh, s- citizens. So that's, that's why I think at the moment, the European Union is in decline. It, can be better it's not difficult to solve the decline issue i say it's not difficult it probably is more convoluted and difficult than i say it is but the european union loves
0: to complicate its problems and it's it's quite interesting it's quite interesting because you said something about uh about obviously the people that get into the european parliament and the representatives that we elect now it's quite interesting because for me i didn't actually really hear too many powerful voices I, I, I said this earlier, I don't, I don't really remember any big speeches or something like that in the European Parliament until UKIP and the Brexit Party got in. And then we started hearing the, you know, Farad saying, you all laughed at me, but look who's, like, and all, and uh, what's yeah, really yeah. name and Whittacombe saying those things. And I think that was the issue, is that a lot of people were voting for people to be in the EU Parliament, but it was like, who are we voting for? What, Like, what are we voting for? We have effectively voting for advocacy and representation we're not actually voting for a particular you know sort of campaign or mandate or you know we're electing people who will just kind of vouch for us but vouching only gets you so far and i think that contributes to your uh, statement saying about uh, the the eu having this problem where it it works for the states but not its citizens and mm-hmm yeah that potentially does contribute to your argument that the uh, that the eu is uh is in decline
1: yeah and and the most popular uh youtube video about the european union uh if you can look it up it's tony blair and nigel farage uh sort of going head to head and i think that was in something like 2004 yeah so that's the most popular video on youtube from the european parliament but anyway what i want to sort of touch on is a lot of people our age tend not to look at Brexit as a matter for debate. And I think it still should be if we want any hopes of ever rejoining. Um, And I'm not saying we should suddenly have a second referendum as a result of these new debates rising, but we should have that discussion nonetheless. Now, why should Brexit matter to people our age, i.e. the youth? I've tried to do my research on this, uh, as well as having my own opinions, but largely uh, a lot of sort of, you know, my kids, they want to be able to move to France and Spain. They've been used as rhetoric, but there's no firm bullet point list of how it will affect young people slash people our age. So I've come up with a bullet point list. So number one, travel and freedom of movement. First of all, it's restricted to 90 days to travel in Europe, so if, if you want to go on a holiday with your friends, you can no longer go for than 90 days. But that's no biggie at the moment. Um, but programs like Erasmus uh, and sort of which was a European student exchange program, yeah, yeah are no longer there anymore. We have the last Erasmus generation, um, which has been quite popular amongst young people our age. Um, But we will face a bigger problem when we are in the working world. Uh, So that's because the EU is a massive labour market that we could contribute to. And we could also get people to contribute to our labour market. But that's no longer possible because there's no freedom of movement. So we could have gone to work in France, Hungary, Spain, Italy, etc. without ever having to get a work visa. But now we have to. And it's not necessarily impossible to go and work in these countries, but there are barriers introduced for us, as if we didn't already have so many more barriers. Mm. But also for younger BAME groups in the UK, in terms of domestic politics, we can we have to have the debate of, is the UK fundamentally more racist as a result of Brexit? Because the Brexit campaign was largely fought on an, immigra- on an immigration platform the idea that we have to go back to the good old times. And you know what does this mean for the progression we have made in terms of race, race relations in the last 30, 40 years? Um, it could mean that some people envision us going all the way back uh, to where there was next to no immigration, to where people were not given the same rights that uh, r- rights and diversity that we have now. So it could mean a lot more negative things for younger BAME groups as well and in terms of the laws that we no longer have to obey we are likely to lose or have already lost workers rights disability rights and in some cases the right to protest as we've covered previously in this podcast
0: mm. and
1: we will possibly lose more under the ECHR yeah which is the European Convention on Human Rights as previously covered
0: and I think and I I think this is a good kind of point to, to to close us in on is that there is a big point on effectively youth. And I'm not just talking about youth in Brexit. I'm talking youth in, in, in general and that relationship that politics has because politics is very here and now, and it's very, what can we do now? What can we do, uh, you know, to help, help tomorrow. And, you know, the, the issue is, is that there is, also the future and ultimately people in 2016 were voting for things that may not even come to affect them and it's a bit like environmental policy such as you know net zero 2050 goals whatever for me it's futile because you're voting or you're creating this policy that isn't actually you know you're using to create a statement to better your campaigns, whatever, but it's not actually affecting you in your, you know, your age, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. It's affecting the youth, if you want to call them. And so as much as people like to kind of brand the youth as this kind of, you know, or they don't know what they're talking about or, you know, they're uneducated or they don't have this disassociation with politics, so it's up to the older generation. The simple matter of the fact is, is that, that i I don't actually believe one i don't believe that's true and secondly you know if we if if the older generations have any sort of morals and ethics they'd actually at least kind of partly consider that whole you know future the current youth element of it because it's so so important and i know that if i was in their position i'd be thinking that so
1: Yeah. yeah and i have i have constant debates with uh our previous uh British politics seminar leader, which you might have heard, uh, James. Um, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Him yeah. targeting him being a, a Remainer. If he, he's never explicitly told us, but yeah. him being a Remainer, he constantly says, "You know, you guys didn't vote, and we come back with, well, we couldn't have voted; we weren't of voting age.'" But I've I've also come back with before, "Of you guys didn't engage us. You you guys didn't tell us why remaining in the European Union mattered." So mm. no one actually listened to us and that's exactly what we're trying to do on politics on draft and that's exactly been my goal for the last couple of months to, and will be uh, going on for the next couple of years to engage people our age about politics because a lot of people aren't interested in politics and things like this matter and it will affect us. It's going to disproportionately, if Brexit is going to disproportionately affect us more than any mm. other uh, group in British politics. But... Hey, go and research it and go and have discussions, as we've always say. And thank you for listening to us.
0: Yes. And uh, and once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, it's really good to be back after a week. Uh, we're, we're now back to, as I tweeted, we're back to university. Uh, timetable. So, hopefully, me and Kartik have a lot more flexibility and a, a lot more kind of scope to create some really good projects, bring in some guests potentially. Um, which is yes, definitely. Exciting. And uh, and yeah, so all that I think that's left to for us to say is uh, my name's James Table,
1: my name's Cortex Kartik.
0: Oh, <laughs> it do this time.
1: At least I didn't say, at least you didn't say my name's Ben James Table, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway. And my name's Kartik Sawney.
0: And uh, you've been listening to Politics on the Draft because remember, if you have to have politics, you must have it on the Draft. Join us next week and we'll see you again. Bye bye.